0: Hello and welcome to Summer Sessions on the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel and the Summer Sessions are featuring the Australian Classics Book Club. The Australian Classics Book Club is a way to look back on great works of Australian fiction and through a panel discussion, explore these books in their context and their resonance for our reading today. Now, the Final Draft Podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. We broadcast from the studios of 2SER in Sydney and we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing. This is a chance to look at the issues that drive each author's storytelling, help you discover more from the books you love. Now, to SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today on the show, we are going to be looking back at Death in Brunswick from Boyd Oxlade. This is a tremendous dark comedy, a fantastic way to visit Melbourne in the 80s, and just an all round fun read. Thank you for joining me here on the Final Draft podcast. I hope you enjoy this panel discussion in the Australian Classics Book Club on Boyd Oxlade's Death in Brunswick. <laughs> We're here for the Australian Classics Book Club. It's great to continue this tradition and explore books that have meant so much to Australia, have helped us define ourselves as a country, and today we've got, I think, probably our youngest Australian classic. Uh, We're going to be speaking about Boyd Oxlade's Death in Brunswick. Joining me to discuss Death in Brunswick, I have David Winter. He is a senior editor at Text Publishing and Text Publish, the amazing classic series that we draw our book club from, I'm also joined by Shane Maloney. Now, Shane is the creator of the popular Australian crime novel series, the Murray Whelan novels. That includes the the stiff, sorry, the brush off stiff, nice try, the big ask. Uh there's so many of them. Now, some of these are text classics, so that means we're going to have to get to them in the book club. Others are just regular classics waiting their turn. Shane wrote the introduction to the text classic edition of Death in Brunswick, and he's got a bit of experience of Boyd uh, and Boyd Oxlade's fictional Melbourne in Death in Brunswick. So welcome, David. Welcome, Shane.
1: G'day. Morning.
0: Pleasure to have you both here. Now, Death in Brunswick is this fantastically dark comic novel that involves uh, nightclubs and cemeteries and a really strange, bizarre murder cover-up sort of scene. I think a lot of people know it from the film, uh, but David, can you tell us a little bit about who Boyd Oxlade was?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, Boyd was born in 1943, although he was notoriously cagey about his age. Uh, He was actually born in Sydney, uh, educated by the Jesuits in Ireland, and then went to Xavier College in Melbourne, and then Mm -hmm. on to uh, Monash University, which was, Mm -hmm. um, he said, during the years of um, student protests. He lived in inner-city Carlton before the suburb was gentrified, and uh, he had a little bit of a stint in a chicken shed there in Carlton. He worked as a cook and a grave digger, like his characters, Carl and Dave, but he was mostly on the dole, uh, and I think one one of his stretches lasted for nine or ten years. Death in Brunswick, uh, set in the early 80s, appeared in 1987. He wrote the screenplay for the 1990 film, which continues to have a huge cult following. Uh, Somewhat ironically, it starred two Kiwis, John Clark and Sam Neill. Uh, He had a... Six or so year spell in Hobart, um, and I had a strange drunken encounter with him there um, when I was quite young. And he uh, returned to Melbourne, um, but didn't publish any further um, works. He he wrote a screenplay called Ron Elms, the Flying Butcher of Alamein, and he was turning it into a novel uh, at the point when he died, age seventy. So that was in 2014, and uh, Text hopes hoped to publish that novel, but it wasn't completed. He may have only been a one-hit wonder, but it is an amazing hit, a brilliant dark comedy, and it's really lasted, and the title, I suppose you could say, has entered the Australian idiom. Uh, He was a very funny man, and he retained his air of being a private schoolboy gone to seed, which is Shane's memorable description for him, uh, to the very end.
0: Yeah, Shane, so in your introduction, you, you talk of knowing Boyd sort of round the traps... In sort of a Carlton Fitzroy type area, and um, I think you talk about if he had any literary pretensions, he kept them well hidden at this time. Can you share some of your reflections on on who Boyd was and and what that might offer to a reading of Death in Brunswick?
2: (coughs) Yeah, (coughs) excuse me, I'm a bit croaky today. Um, I don't think I ever saw Boyd outside licensed premises. which wasn't to say that he's um, particularly a drunk. It's just that there was a time before you could drink all the time when you could only drink some of the time, particularly late at night. And so in the Fitzcarlton ghetto area, um, there would be a limited number of licensed premises open say at midnight uh, that you might retreat to and, and find reflective types sitting at the bar and he was one of those he was a great conversationalist i can't remember anything specific we talked about but he was a kind of person that would start off with a sort of sarcastic remark and you'd be there kind of three hours later with ideas just kind of pinging backwards and forwards um in a rather kind of dry and laconic sort of way Uh, so that's um really how i knew boyd um you know he was uh, it was quite sort of erudite. I mean, it, there wasn't anything that you couldn't talk about, so we could, um, you know, devote um, devote our attention to anything from, you know, James Joyce to the, um, the, the you know, Saving the Lesbian Whales. And um, um, I was quite, well, i not not kind of shocked. There was a sense of sort of good on him when the book came out, um, and particularly so. Uh, when its content was um, so familiar, Um, he really did kind of um, uh, depict a world that was very, very um, physically familiar, socially familiar. Um, Yeah.
0: Was there anything about his, his conversational and rhetorical style over the bar that suggests itself in Death in Brunswick?
2: Oh, well, uh, there's that kind of, um, uh, that acerbic sort of dryness called, you know, droll sort of dryness. Um, I mean, calling it death in Brunswick for the start, you know, was, is clearly, um, a reference to death in Venice. Mm. Uh, and, um, uh, and so, you know, he could, he, he knew that the readership, um, would get that immediately and see what he was on about. Um, so, you know, he, he um, uh, uh, uh you know i think he just turned the material that was readily to hand um his way uh and uh, and he had the he had the chops to do
1: it shane can i ask you you talk about um the book coming in the introduction about the book coming somewhat out of the blue um was it inspiring to you you know writing stiff which was what 7 years later i think um having this this local setting, for the book, um, the idea that you could use what was around you, and make a funny novel of it.
2: Uh, sure, to some extent, I think it, it must have um, it must have kind of uh, encouraged me in some way. Um, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, to to be able to um, to have uh, this very kind of witty outlook on um, the very gritty the witty and the gritty, if you like, um, uh, surroundings, the streets around me and the places and so on. Um, a- Any time as a reader you encounter something that close to home, you get a real buzz out of it, I think. And um, and I certainly kind of got a buzz as a reader, um, first of all. Uh, and then, and then uh, when I came to write myself, there was that example of a local product sitting there in front of me.
0: Uh, we've mentioned the cult status of both the book and the film *Death in Brunswick*, but maybe we shouldn't presume too much familiarity for the listeners. Now, this is the story of Carl. He's he's a chef, sort of, at a nightclub. He doesn't really feel very inspired by what he has to do, and he's really got to get out of the job. His mum's come to stay with him, uh, and and now he's living on the promise of a big inheritance. If she'd only uh, have the decency of dying. He's hitting on Sophie the waitress, who's about 22 years younger than him, when Mustafa, whom he owes a bit of money, uh, maybe more than a bit for drugs, uh, comes to confront him. And that's that's where suddenly uh, there's a body that needs to be hidden, and he has to call on his mate Dave. It's a, it's a book, There's you don't want to give away spoilers whenever you talk about a book for the people that haven't yet read, but I think... It's set up very well that there's going to be a death, and I think everyone knows the very fam- the very famous graveyard scene. But from going on from what you were just saying there, Shane, I wanted to to start a little bit with nostalgia because the setting is the setting is iconic, but also as as Carl moves through Brunswick down to Carlton, he he continually he echoes this enduring lament about the changing character of the area, and I feel like it's a refrain we continue to hear not just in Sydney or Melbourne across the world. Everyone's looking for the next cool, slightly down-at-the-heel place to gentrify. And Carl seems like this perfect vision, the paradox of gentrification. He hates his poor situation. He wants that money. He wants to rise above it. But he hates equally the type of person he'd need to become. This is a very Melbourne novel. Can you guys talk to me about the area and maybe the nostalgia for that
2: time?
1: Shane, I think this is over to you.
2: Yeah, look, it, it probably is. I know the I know the territory pretty well. Um, he, you know, he worked at a um, he worked at a nightclub, which was obviously um, a place called Bombay Rock in Phoenix Street, uh, which was um, one of the main kind of rock venues for the city in terms of the acts that it put on. But uh, was was guarded at the door by absolute kind of barbarian brutes who were like kind of extras out of vikings you know uh who throw you down the stairs as soon as look at you um and uh, the deal at those sort of venues under the licensing terms was that you could only drink um or you could only serve drink if uh, if the patrons were having substantial refreshment um What this meant was that when you went in, you got a raffle ticket um, page, just out of one of those little cheap books of raffle tickets, and this entitled you to either A, a slice of pizza that had sat in the Bay marie for um, several hours, or um, two um, thrice-deep-fried dim-sims, or uh, about five chips, Um, which were sort of remarkably soggy. Nobody ever really took the food (laughs) unless they were kind of too drunk to be able to tell what they were doing. So, um, you know, and all of this came from some clearly greasy, filthy kitchen (laughs) down below. People were focused on a completely crowded band room and, you know, seeing all of the major acts in the country. So... um, that was very, very familiar to me. I mean, the, the cook there was in about the lowest of the low in the world's pecking order. And then Brunswick itself um, was, um, you know, unravaged by um, apartment complexes and um, and the high cost of, of real estate and was still uh, essentially a kind of migrant working class suburb with um, lots of uh, small houses packed into the bottom end of it into the southern part of it. There's a scene in the movie that I think is absolutely of the moment of that time in the sort of early 80s, late 70s, early 80s of, um, of Brunswick and uh, it, I can't recall it being described or mentioned in the book, so it must have been an inspiration to them as they were out there shooting the film, but it's just a scene in a deserted, street at the height of summer uh, there's there's a wind blowing an empty can down the gutter uh, carl is trudging off somewhere and he walks past two little boys about seven or eight years old and they've got sticks and they're laying into a tree that the council has planted in the, on the in the footpath, you know, the, 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 a little square of asphalt's been dug up and the council has planted a tree with a stake. The whole thing's about sort of a metre and a half tall and these two kids are just beating the daylights out of the tree. And I thought, <laughs> that's it, that's the Brunswick that I moved into, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, um... Uh, And there there was a much larger Greek presence in in this postcode as well um, at that time. So, I mean, in so many ways, it was very sort of um, spot on um, physical and social description of uh, Carl's world.
0: Is it strange to feel a nostalgia for that? Because, I mean, I'm I'm in Sydney, we have lockout laws, and just the idea that there's... I don't care how dingy it is that there's a, a club that's going to be playing the hottest, greatest bands into the evening seems strangely exotic to me. I mean, it's not like we don't have band rooms, but it it seems like that was a time that I'd like to go back to, at least, you know, for a visit.
2: Well, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I... I... I uh, I guess it uh, it did have its charms.
0: <laughs> you um I'm oh, sorry, Dave.
1: No, I was just gonna ask, um Shane, you've uh situated the book between um Monkey Grip, which of course is Melbourne as well in the late seventies, and Praise Brisbane in the early 90s or probably set in the late 80s I guess but in a sense the book is it's also a, a bit of an outlier because mainly because it's it's very funny so the, I was trying to think of what was around at the time that was similar and I thought of maybe Colin Talbot's um Sweethearts do you remember that yes. one yes I do yes, yes
2: that's right uh, that's right and and you know this is this was another product of um the the then fleeting um Carlton literary intelligentsia uh, Sweethearts definitely um, Sweethearts has a character who's um, who's so dopey when he finds um, other men's clothes in the bedroom in his bedroom that he shares with his girlfriend his first reaction is to think how considerate she is to have bought him some clothes <laughs> and, how, and how, how typically kind of unworldly she is that she's bought them all the wrong size um, so, uh, you know, um, uh, I, yeah, certainly Sweethearts. Um, I don't know. Were there other examples? There weren't a lot of uh,
1: books. No. Well, I guess I just of... feel that it, it sort of sits in that lineage of, um, of gritty realism and, and that kind of grungy feel, which is it's very easy to trace through um, from Monkey Grip onwards. And yet, there is, it, it, it really has something different about it. It's that really sardonic. Um, tone and the obvious Evelyn Waugh influence, and the just the the, uh, the wittiness of it really—that it's prepared to send up everything as, as well as observe it uh, in fine detail. Oh, I think it's a very well put together book.
2: Um, the this um, creeping idea that creeps up on uh, uh, on Carl in the course of of the book doesn't um, really kind of make itself explicit until quite late and it's almost like a book with a punchline, I mean the, the penny drops in the last few paragraphs mm. um, and, and it's just, it ends kind of, you know, marvellously I think um, which, is, uh, you know, which is a considerable achievement it doesn't just kind of uh, you know, peter out, it's not a crime story in any kind of conventional sense I mean after all they, they get away with it uh, but um, uh, I don't think that's too much of a spoiler to give away at this point but um, he, the deafness with which he kind of handles Carl's combination of, uh, of, of sort of ambition and sloth and uh, and um, uh, just uh, being hanging out waiting to see what will turn up uh, and then um, Things getting completely out of hand. I, I think I was probably more inspired, by, by that idea that um, that things can get seriously out of hand very, very quickly. Um, that that was uh, as much as the setting in Brunswick. It was that sense uh, in uh, death in Brunswick that um, that that uh, informed. Murray Whelan's development Mm.
1: and he never lets it um, tip over into farce you know it never gets silly uh, despite always
2: (laughs) what do you mean it never gets well you know (laughs) I
1: suppose the graveyard scene but like it kind of keeps it in check you know there's something
2: uh... how often have you been in the Coburg Cemetery at 2 o'clock in
1: the morning Shane I probably shouldn't say that on the air
0: (laughs) I was really interested in the movement of Carl's personality and you were just talking about it there, Shane. I felt like there was sort of a before and after Carl. And I really... This was one thing sort of looking at clips from the film that that I struggled with a bit because Sam Neill just... And I I could be putting all the roles he's played onto this one character, but he seems a little too smooth, a little too suave and confident. Like Carl, at first, he's so earnest and anxious. He almost seems like he's younger than everyone, even Sophie. He's like like a child. Yeah. And then you get to the chrysalis point of the killing. And then he goes through, I, I, I've, in my notes I've written down, he's, he's Rashkolnikov on meth. It's just like the, the guilt consumes him in this frenetic way. And then what emerges at the end, you know, Shane, you just alluded to it. It's such a brilliant cliffhanger. Yeah. And it, it feels like a wholly different Carl that yeah. we have in those last few pages.
1: Just, I, I really noticed that on, on this read through, he's so old really, and so much of his uh, existence is about kind of covering that up because everyone in the in the club and, and Sophie, obviously, is so, is so much younger than him. So he knows he's kind of out of his depth and uh, he's going to be shown up. And yet at the same time, he they're all so much more sussed than him and it takes him forever to kind of figure anything out.
0: Mm. I was also really interested in the way perspective is used and there's that really interesting section in the in the middle, the death section, where we jump between Carl and Dave mm. and back and forth in time and then a really, sort of just towards the end, there's a completely out of character with the rest of the book moment of Carl's mum's perspective
1: Yeah, he shifts uh, and then he shifts back to Dave again, so he does these very neat point of view shifts that um, I think are very smooth Like it's pretty impressive really, like, it's quite a difficult thing to
0: do. They're, wonder- they're wonderfully done, but it, was, it got me thinking about how I was reading the book, and for the first part where we're in Carl's head, it, it does feel frenetic, it feels close, and I, you know, as much as I was feeling this nostalgia for going back to to a, a Melbourne with bands all night, I I also sort of, I didn't want to, I, I felt like I was on a trip with Carl and I was coming down badly. Uh, and then we move to Dave, and Dave's such an interesting character because he's he's kind of got it together. There's even the even a point where I think um, is he in the grave, and and Carl looks at Dave, and he, he says, "Dave, you're enjoying this," and Dave's just a fascinating <laughs> a fascinating character in that way.
2: I think uh, Carl's uh, Carl's a great character because he's such a no hoper and. Things only start to go right in his life when he kills someone. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and suddenly things uh, are, are all kind of turning around. You know, he's got the girl, she's younger. You know, he's starting to have sort of ideas. Um, and there's definitely a kind of uh, a lot more uh, spring in his step um, after this Terrible thing has inadvertently happened to him. He's
0: felt like he, he's felt his entire life he, he could never do anything. He'd never take you know his life in hand, and he realizes he can when he he takes someone else's life.
1: That's yeah. <laughs> That's dark. Yeah. Of course, he does also start um, you know touching himself on a tram when looking at middle-aged women. So um. yeah,
0: this would be this would be a hard book to imagine. Uh, you know, making a huge splash right now. I mean, it'd make a splash, but I wonder how it would be received. Um, we've mentioned Carl's mum there. She she doesn't uh, get much favour from him. And women in general in this novel get a really hard time. Like, through Dave and Carl's eyes, like, Carl's wife, Prue, we never meet. But she is just rubbished constantly by him simply because, you know, she was obviously... Um, social pressure meant that she didn't feel like she could come out as a lesbian until she'd been married to Carl and couldn't take it anymore. And Dave's wife, June also, I think you describe her in the intro, um, Shane as, uh, a shrew or something along those lines. And, um, but she's also the hard line to kind of Dave's sort of laconic socialism. She, she still is, is carrying the flame. It seemed to me.
2: Ah, yes, but Sophie's the key to, um, to Carl's outlook. Um, and, and I think um, to Boyd's as well. Uh, the, part of the appeal of, that Sophie has—a very strong part of the appeal that Sophie has—is uh, that she does not make the kinds of sexual demands on him, or the, uh, that um, that the women he has known uh, have. That is to say, women who are probably um, infused with some degree of um, uh, assertion about their own <laughs> sexuality. So. Uh, she's Sophie. Um, Sophie doesn't want him to do things that he does that he, that other women have clearly demanded of him that he does not particularly enjoy. Um, there's a circumlocution for you. Uh, <laughs> you can work out what that means. I feel like Carl
0: would Carl would not enjoy two thousand and eighteen.
2: <laughs> and he well, uh, and also um, he does not place demands on her. Which, um, uh, which she thinks that Greek men would. Um, we're getting a bit anatomical here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there's and- some great anatomical scenes, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's apt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I mean, I think that um, there's, a, there's a certain um, underlying bitterness there as well um, about, um, in Carl's mind, um, about women, where um, where would where do you think Boyd would have fallen on all of this? Because
0: he uses political views as background for all of his characters. Um, June particularly is is almost exclusively political in in her speech in the novel. Uh, but he plays around with ideas, and he's really heavy-handed. Well, not heavy-handed. Sorry, he's he, it, he's heavily ironic um, in the way he, particularly, I, I thought with June, like I I. I've, I felt he would have subscribed a lot to uh, some of her points of view, particularly around equality. And there's a, there's a lot of irony to the, her call for an end to a boys club, which seems mean-spirited, but actually would have saved Dave from becoming an accessory to murder if he didn't feel like he had to constantly you know, run and chase and help his mates. Um, I, I, I thought Boyd was perhaps trying to be very progressive in the ideas he was putting forward.
2: <laughs> well, I would have thought the other way around really. Yeah.
0: I get and and I wondered then am I reading this am I reading this exclusively in 2018 with a 2018 mindset and I'm I'm seeing things in in June that I I want to see and I want to um I want to have represent politics as I read them now. It's that's one of the interesting things I think about reading a classic is you never you never free of your own point of view.
2: Well, I think June's a bit of a harpy, really. Um, but what's uh, interesting about it is her relationship with Dave. So Dave is um, Dave is simultaneously um, uh, sort of henpecked, um, but uh, oblivious to it, um, and so uh, it's a much more kind of equal relationship between um, between um, Dave and his wife than. Than his partner, than um, than than Boyd can kind of quite imagine, uh, and I think it's sort of quite frightening to him in a way that the two people could be sort of um, not sparking off each other, but but be, be be kind of resolutely plodding together forward, you know, with their house and kids and all of that kind of thing, uh, and it's that it's the kind of contest between the two of them in which there are. It's sort of clearly no winners or losers it their personalities um you know one of them this sort of rather kind of um, um shrewish wife uh and and the guy in the sort of you know bluey singlet with a, with a mouthful of um sort of uh you know nails ready to go and you know hammer up a, another plywood partition because there's a baby on the way or something you know.
0: I felt like there was there's a, a maybe a respect that Dave has for June that maybe he doesn't even have the vocabulary to articulate at the time. And I, I was actually really interested as you were talking there, thinking about their kids because they've got all boys. June is you know really quite openly disdainful of men and um, especially the men in her family. Uh, I, I'd love to know you know we're never going to get a follow up book where we find out how Dave and June's boys grew up, but. They'd be fascinating men to meet right now, with um, with that family environment.
2: Well, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I'd, the sequel, you'd be, you'd be up to death in Brunswick Five or something by that stage. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, the property prices would go down with all that death.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, um, not even that would affect it. and You could. Right now, you know, in Brunswick, the Greens candidate could beat an Italian pensioner to death in Sydney Road with a solar panel and it wouldn't affect their (laughs) vote.
0: Perhaps perhaps before we wrap up, we should just do a little bit more around ideas of the film because the the book and the film are very different beasts and we've talked about them being, uh, you know, classics and... um, but which which one which one do you think is more enduring? Because um, Shane, as you mentioned in your introduction, there's a bit of a happy ending tacked onto the film. Which one? Which one? Perhaps is more enduring, and which one do you like more?
2: Uh, look, this is a book club, isn't it? Let's not mm-hmm. talk about the film. Let's talk <laughs> about my books.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So we're we, we we're talking about the well, you've we've got to talk about the brush off because you you just gave me the brush off on the film. <laughs>
2: That's right. That's exactly. I've stiffed you. Oh, very well done.
0: (laughs) Um, You going to talk about the
2: books? (laughs) Well, like Death in Brunswick.
0: So I can edit out everything else and you've just smoothly segued.
2: Like Death in Brunswick. um, One of the things uh, that Death in Brunswick has in common, of course... um, with uh, the brush-off is that they are both text classics. Uh, and, uh, yes, look, I think... <laughs> Come on, Shane. Having, having elbowed my way. This has
0: turned into, this. into an archery tutorial, drawing that long bow. Yeah.
1: It has, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I tell you, what, I mean, I think the film of, um, of Death in Brunswick is excellent, but I, I, do, uh, I do love the novel for its light touch. I just think it's it's just so deft and um uh i only met boyd a couple of times a few times but he was uh such an entertaining man and i think he knew exactly what he was doing with this book and i hope that people read it um and uh it, you know it's just got got really great gross out humor and then just such um cl- clever skill um in its construction
0: there is a fascinating intersection there then because he he was involved in the screenplay he he was a co-writer on the screenplay, so having things like a, a happy ending sort of t- tacked on, I'm always interested in that process and what people are thinking, and because it was his process on his own book, um, they probably sit interestingly as, as, as different stories.
1: But Shane, do you know the, st- the story? Because I don't I don't know it well, but if you can tell us about the um, when they locked in a room or something, the director and, and Boyd, because Boyd just couldn't be wrangled. And there was something about that if they had to stay in the room for however many... Days at a time, with a constant supply of booze and food, in order to get a screenplay together. Well, do you know that? There were. I wasn't
2: there, no. but there were. There were. There were. Um, there were kind of strong rumours that when John Rowan was um, um, adapting the film, and uh, Boyd was writing the script, that that um, that Boyd sat John Rowan in a school desk. A little standalone flat-lid school desk in in a room uh, which had no other furniture, and um, uh, he sat him there with a notepad, and then Boyd walked around the room dictating um, ideas and scenarios and dialogue and so on, Uh, and that's how they got that's how they arrived at the script. But I don't know that was that's possibly an apocryphal story. There were there were there were many. Versions, or there were many. There, there was considerable speculation. Um, uh, Once, once people had asked the initial question, which was, "Jesus, have you read Boyd's book?" Um, The next question was, "Have you heard they're adapting it to the screen?" And then, you know, how they're doing that. You know, so there was a kind of sort of sequence there, and all of them had a range of answers. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that the, um, the, the happy ending, um, was, you know, emphasized the difference between the film and the book because, um, because in the, in the book, the ending I think is terrific and it hangs in the air, uh, and, um, uh, it's going on inside Carl's head, barely that, you know, the flicker of it is there, uh, and, uh. That is very very difficult to put on the screen. So uh, it, so instead there was a kind of happy ending, uh, and um, actually the house, um, the rather um, elaborately uh, Greekified house, um, which was the setting for the for the last scene, still is still here in Brunswick. So if you you can catch sight of it down there you look down a, a rather narrow street and there at the end of the cul-de-sac facing back down the street towards you is this house painted um, basically like the Greek flag um, and uh, so you know there are certainly there is certainly much of uh, of Boyd's world
1: um,
2: that's still that are still strongly um, there in the built fabric of Brunswick I think the film
1: does str- uh, struggle to capture the um the inner thoughts We can't capture the inner thoughts of Carl I mean such an interiorized uh, novel I'm just flicking through the pages now it's a, all the all Carl's thoughts are in italics so you can see you know immediately that you know a quarter to a third of the book is just him his internal monologue mm. and uh, I mean that's a
2: problem that the the film is the same team of filmmakers encountered, um, when they made the, the telemovies of, um, stiff and the brush off that because, um, my, you know, the, because, uh, uh the books are first person interior monologues, um, then, uh, teasing out the, um, The content becomes um, quite a challenge in a different medium. So when when you know John Clark was was working on um, uh, creating scripts for those and uh, Sam Neill was directing them, uh, they were they were confronted with exactly the same sort of problems that they had to deal with in making Death in Brunswick.
1: Were you uh, dictating in a room with a school desk?
2: Uh, uh no, I was uh, I, I I was uh, writing my thoughts on cigarette papers and having a guy called Vinny deliver them at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have we um
0: does anyone have anything else we wanna add or have we reached a nice sort of I think breaking off point?
1: Yeah, I think we're I think we've have you got enough? Can you edit? Oh, absolutely. This? Yeah. This is something coherent? Yeah.
0: We've got so this is this is a very special book club. <laughs> this is this is what a book club with too much wine sitting around a fireplace would be like. Um, I'm just going to do I'm just going to do an outro. I'm just going to sort of back announce uh, both of you. Thank you very much, David and Shane. We've had an absolutely fantastic book club discussing death in Brunswick by Boyd Oxlade. I've been speaking with David Winter. He is a senior editor at Text Publishing. And Shane Maloney, he is a creator of the Murray Whelan series, Stiff, the brush-off, there's movies of them too. Uh, Some of them are text classics, some of them are just regular classics, so I recommend getting out and reading them all. Thank you both for joining me.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew.
2: Yes, thanks, Andrew. It's been a very great pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Final Draft podcast. All summer long, Final Draft's summer sessions are featuring the Australian Classics Book Club, where today we explored Boyd Oxlade's death in Brunswick. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on the socials. You can email us to send an email to finaldraft at 2scr.com. We would love to hear from you. Drop us a like, a recommendation, a comment wherever you are listening to this podcast. It's a way to help other people discover the show. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. Until next week,
2: happy reading. Bye for now.